Heavenly Father, we want to be a people who trust you in all ways and in all things. We want to have a right assurance of our faith every moment of every day. We recognize our weakness in our flesh and how we allow our circumstances rather than your word and your promises to dictate our days and our weeks and our years. We ask, Lord, that you would use this interaction with Moses and the work you were doing with the people of Israel as they were bound in Egypt to give us assurance this morning that we, members and visitors of Cambrian Park Baptist Church, would know that you are faithful. You are a God who makes and keeps promises. And we as your people can believe that with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so I ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with me, be gracious with our church this morning, be gracious with your churches here in the South Bay, and let us be a people of great faith every moment of every day, walking, knowing that you are our good and great God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you do not have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 6, please do so. If you do not have a Bible and you need one, please raise your hand and I will get one to you. Um, were you struggling as well, looking up for a song that was not there? I, I felt really slow. You know, when, we, when I first came to this church, we had hymnals, and we, so this was very normal. But for the last 20 years or so, we've had a projection, and I kept looking up thinking, oh, there's nothing there. And then it took me a while to figure out I had it in my hand. <clears throat> I'm thankful that you are far brighter than I am, saints. <clears throat> All right, so we're in chapter 6, and if you remember where we were last week, in ch- at the end of chapter 5, um, the Israelites and Moses were not pleased with the promise that was made that seemingly was unkept at this point in time. It was, a, it was apparent that their situation had gotten worse and not better, and so they had lost confidence in this Yahweh, and they had lost confidence in his messenger, Moses. Uh, The people complained to the foreman. The foreman complained to the taskmasters and to Pharaoh himself. And then they actually, if you remember, they actually asked God to judge Moses and Aaron. And then God, and then Moses came to God in prayer in chapter 5. Look at verse 22, chapter 5. And he said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And those are harsh words. And we saw last week why Moses lifted these up to God. I would argue that Moses' faith was shaken here too. His assurance in the name of God and the promises of God had been shaken by the delay and the suffering Moses said, you have not delivered your people. God responded, chapter 6, verse 1, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. That's God's response. You think that I'm not a faithful God. You wait and see what I'm about to do right before your eyes, Moses. You see, Moses and the Israelites, they all expected deliverance to happen immediately. They expected this word to come, God to descend, to overtake Pharaoh, and to be set free. But instead, God delayed for his glory, and their suffering increased for his glory. But even though Moses spoke so hastily to God at the end of chapter 5, I want you to notice how God responded with much grace. He says to Moses, he reassures Moses, oh, I'm going to act, and I'm going to act right now. And what I'm going to do will bring glory to my name by you, by the people of Israel, by the Egyptians, and by people for centuries to come. 
and this was the plan all along. God had not forsaken his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was just going to make it better. So holding on to an assurance of our faith, my beloved, I would argue is difficult. It's difficult. It was difficult for them, and it's difficult for us, but it's essential that we do so. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and following, the author said, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? He is faithful. And as Christians, this assurance, it is not only necessary for your testimony to this dead and dying world, it is necessary for your perseverance to the end. Assurance of faith is not optional. Hebrews chapter 10 continued in verse 35. That's why he said, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And so we see right off that we can have assurance and we can throw it away. And so it is my hope this morning, my beloved, that we will not just have it, but it will grow. And if I end this sermon, you're going to say, oh, has my faith increased? Has my assurance and my faithful God increased by hearing the word today? Amen? All right, that's my goal for you. That's your goal for me. So by God's grace, let's dive into this. I have three questions that if we can answer well according to the text, I think we're going to have a greater assurance in the faithfulness of God to his people. Number one, can Yahweh be trusted? Can Yahweh be trusted? Number two, will man believe? And number three, in whom can our hope be found? Can we trust Yahweh? Will we believe what Yahweh has to say? And then where can we find hope today, 2019? Number one, I pray you're with me. Can Yahweh be trusted? God's response to Moses in chapter 6 is full of grace, but I want you to know it is unwavering. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, speaking of the Israelites, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So the promises had been made, going all the way back to Abraham, that God was going to do this great work. The promises were reiterated to Moses from the burning bush, and Moses communicated that to the people. He said, God's going to come, he's going to set us free, he's going to deliver us from Pharaoh out of this land, and he's going to bring us into a promised land where he will be our God and we will be his people. And now he comes and he says, I'm going to show you. I've made the promise, you've heard the promise, and now you're going to see the promise. Look again, verse 1, now you shall see what I will do. He says, I'm not just going to let you go. I'm not just going to get you out. I'm going to exercise my power in such a magnificent way that centuries from now, Hollywood will make a movie of it or multiple movies of it. This is how big it's going to be. Pharaoh's going to be so eager to get you out, he's going to command that you leave and be free. And this was the statement that God had planned to make in setting his people free. Now, had Moses only said to this to the people, I, I imagine they had heard him and said, okay, I'll talk to cheap. He's already said it. He hasn't done it. The suffering is greater. We need to see action. And so God being good and gracious, knowing how much we struggle, he gives another prophetic word to Moses. And he does two things. He says, I'm, I'm going to ensure you that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. This is how good God is. 
When we doubt, he says, I'll show you how I'm going to do it. We should just believe him anyway because he's faithful. But he says, I'll show you. Look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this dialogue from chat, from verse 2 to verse 8 is bookend by him saying, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. So everything in between hangs upon his name. He's saying, this is my character, this is my nature, this is what I'm going to do, listen closely. And I want us to as well. He said, by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He only made himself known as God Almighty, El Shaddai. The all-powerful, supreme, all-sufficient God, but not Yahweh. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you should say, no, wait just a minute. You told us that he actually did reveal himself to the patriarchs as Yahweh, and you referenced several scripture in Genesis, and I did, because he did. So how can God say he did not make himself known to them by the name Yahweh when he, in fact, did? To make known in the Eastern culture, is more and was more than than a simple identification of someone's name or information about them. To make known someone's name was to experience that person, to experience their character, and to experience their nature. And in this case, God is saying, I'm going to make known to you who I am. Not just El Shaddai, not just God Almighty, but the great I am Yahweh. His faithfulness and his ability to fulfill the covenant promises he had made centuries before to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You see, up to this point in time, they only had the promises of the word. But now, those promises were going to be experienced in real time. In Genesis, listen closely, the patriarchs knew God as a promise giver. But in Exodus, we're going to see God as the promise keeper. He's going to capitalize on those promises and make himself known. Look at verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, we've talked about covenant already in this study, but to remind you, the covenant is an agreement, a relational agreement between two or more parties. In this particular case, the covenant relationship between God and his people. And then in a few verses, we're going to see this lineage that is dropped in here that goes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, bumps all the way down to Moses and to Aaron. And for us, you know, as Westerners, we don't like genealogies. They're tedious. We can't pronounce the names. They seem like a nuisance to us but they would be great encouragement to the people of Israel. Because God is saying, 400 years have passed. Four generations have come and gone, but I have not forgotten my covenant. My covenant stands, God says, because I am a faithful God. And through Moses and Aaron, direct descendants from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Levi, he says, I am now going to exercise that covenant. I'm going to put it into practice. What I told them by word you will see with your own eyes. And so contrary to God forgetting them, he heard their groaning and he had plans to relieve them. Not at some future point in time, but now. He says, I'm going to act on your behalf now. 
And then he gives these extraordinary details. All the, all the uh, commentaries talk about the I wills. There are seven I will statements in here. And of course, the number seven, as we know scripturally, is, is, a, is a symbolic number for perfection or completion. And in these seven I will statements, there are four extraordinary promises that apply to them and apply to us. And if you hear these promises rightly today, by the end of this sermon, you will be, your faith will be assured. You will walk out of this church with a skip in your step, no matter how you came in. Seven I will statements with four promises, liberation, redemption, adoption, and possession. First, he was going to exercise his will to bring about their liberation. Look at, look at verse 6 again. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now, here's your first I will. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. No longer would they be slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, working in the hot sun, making bricks, but they'd be free men and free women in a new land, serving their faithful God. Secondly, they would enjoy redemption, the act of being brought out. And here, the terminology is a kinsman redeemer, which we'll look out more in a bit. Look at the latter part of verse 6. Third, I will, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God would buy his people back, not by paying Pharaoh, but by punishing Pharaoh for the years of slavery he inflicted upon God's people. Third, they would be adopted. Look at verse 7. I will, number 4, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So not only set free, not only bought, brought back, but they'd be adopted, brought into the family as sons and daughters of Yahweh. And then lastly, the, the one that probably hit them most because they were slaves, sojourners in a foreign land, a new land. Liberation, redemption, adoption, and possession. Look at verse 8, the last two I wills. God said, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Last one, I will give it to you for a possession. And then he ends it with what? I am the Lord. He starts with I am the Lord. He ends with, I am the Lord, because this is his will to do these great things on their behalf, to liberate them, to redeem them, to adopt them, and to give them a land to possess as their own. So why, why is Yahweh going to do this with the Israelites? Were, were they that much better than the Egyptians? I mean, did we see a great faithfulness here? Was it because they trusted him that God was going to do this? No, you're shaking your heads and you're right. Absolutely not. What we've seen at this point is a lack of faith, a lack of assurance. He would accomplish this great work right before their eyes. Look at the latter part of verse 7. This answer is extraordinary. So that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why was he going to do this? So they would know that he is God, and in knowing that he is God, they would worship him. You say, well, that's the mandate for all creation. Yes, that we would know that he is God, he is Yahweh, and worship him. In other words, God's making it very clear that everything that's going to transpire for the next several chapters that we will study over the next several weeks is all him. It's all God. It's all God's glory. And all the Israelites had to do was know him. They had to believe. 
know him as Lord and Savior through faith. He was going to do all the work. They just had to believe. And not just believe with their, with their minds, but believe and personally experience this Yahweh who would exercise his mighty outstretched arm for their well-being. These extraordinary I wills, I would argue, my beloved, that God in fulfilling his covenant should have banished all doubt, all lack of faith, all reservations to his fidelity and his power in the hearts and minds of the people then. Did it? Did it work? Did his seven I wills and four great promises of liberation, redemption, adoption, and possession, did it work? Point number two, will man believe? Look at verse nine. You're not going to like the answer. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. The thus is everything God just said in verses two through eight. He told them everything God said, word for word. But they did not listen to Moses. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So we have some interesting dynamics. Moses is back in. He's in the game again. Right? I mean, he was doubting. At the end of chapter 5, he's accusing God of not following through with his promises, and, and God has now won Moses' heart again. So he's back in the game. He goes to the people, encouraged, energetic. He tells the people of the seven I wills and the four great promises that God had made and told him liberation, redemption, adoption, possession. And even though coming directly from the mouth of the prophet of Yahweh, we hear these tragic words in verse 9, they did not listen. You could also rewrite that. They did not believe. They heard what Moses said. It wasn't an issue of actually hearing Moses' words. They didn't believe what he said. When Moses appeared to them the first time from the burning bush, they were all ears, weren't they? Oh, I mean, they loved what he had to say because they had waited 400 years for this message. And then here comes this great prophet out of the desert from the burning bush. And you remember what they did? They heard, they saw the miracles that Aaron performed. They believed, and what did they do? Remember, they bowed down, and the Bible says twice they bowed down. They worshiped God. That was their first response. Not this time. This time their ears are stopped, their hearts are hardened, and they refused to listen. You say, well, what happened? I mean, it wasn't that long of a period of time. It really wasn't. Maybe a few weeks, a month max. What had changed in such a short period of time for these people to be worshiping God and hearing his word to rejecting God and refusing to hear what the prophet had to say? Look at the latter part of verse 9, and we have our answer. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery, they refused to believe. Their spirits were broken, my beloved, because they thought God had been unfaithful. I mean, time had passed. Many of them were, had already stopped working. They thought liberation was going to happen immediately. But God had delayed, and in his delay, they felt betrayed. And so their spirits were broken. You mix that with the fact that they had these high expectations, and instead of being set free, their workload got harder. They were experiencing extreme suffering, and that their faith had been stripped from them. They had become a faithless people. 
And I would argue, and I think you might agree, that failed expectations mixed with suffering is a lethal combination. We've probably all experienced this at some point in time. Despair mixed with suffering, unfulfilled expectation combined with physical, emotional, or relational suffering puts us in the pressure cooker of faith, and it really squeezes us to see whether or not we really believe. Are you really going to stay the course when what you wanted so bad you did not get? Are you really going to stay the course when what you wanted so bad you did not get, and on top of that, you got something you did not want, physical suffering, emotional suffering? You remember our friend Job? Remember our friend Job? At the very beginning of the story, Satan appears before God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is no, more, no one else more righteous than him. I mean, Job was doing it right. He loved the Lord. He loved his children. He was prospering. He was well known. He had honor in his community. So God gives Satan the right to test him and Satan does. And he takes away everything destroys his livestock, destroys his family, kills his children. Moses was broken. His expectation was a long life, a fruitful life. He would die and his family would continue to prosper. That expectation failed. And then God allows Satan to go again. He says, now you can touch his body. Don't kill him, but you can touch his body. And he, he put boils, horrible sores all over Job's body. And so Job finds himself expectations dashed, suffering extreme. And you know how the story goes. Right up through chapter 37, he's right at it. I mean, you almost are waiting for him to say, I give up. I don't believe Yahweh. You're not real. And if you're real, you're not good. And then what happens in chapter 38? God speaks. God brings his word. He brings his word to his faithful, righteous servant, Moses, and brings him out of his faithlessness. He brings assurance back through his word. The Israelites found themselves enslaved by their own slavery. Their unfulfilled expectations and suffering made them a faithless people. And this, my beloved, is the nature of sin. It stops our ears from hearing the word of God. Expectations unmet, suffering of all kinds, has a tendency to cause us not to hear what we need to hear, and that is the Word of God. What we need most to bring us out of our spiritual stupor is God's Word, and yet when we're upset or we're discouraged or we're, we're suffering, that's the one thing we often turn away from. I won't go to church. I won't read my Bible. I won't go to my small group. It should be the opposite. I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I wanted this, I didn't get it. Go to church, read your Bible, go to the Bible study. The Bible reminds us of what the Israelites and Moses and Aaron and Job needed to hear of how good our God is. You need God's word to remind you the hope that you have in Christ if you are in Christ. You need that Reassurance, I would argue, every day, multiple times a day, if your faith is to remain strong. You need the Bible to tell you of the unchangeable expectations that you will know and will be realized when Christ comes again in glory. That's why the Bible says what? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All your hope, fix it upon him when he comes. You need the Bible 
to tell you again and again that you will be with God, that you will reign with God, that you'll be seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. You need to hear that every day, saints, in some capacity, that you will live and enjoy a restored creation with a restored community of brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever. That this glorious picture of the redemption we have in Christ, you enjoy it now and you have it forever. It cannot be taken away. Your assurance is secure. You need the word of God reminding you daily, hourly, that these light and momentary afflictions are what? Are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. And all of our afflictions are light and momentary. The afflictions of the Israelites, as extreme as they were, this verse applies light and momentary compared to the glory. If you lived 90 years, 100 years in abject poverty and extreme slavery, it will not compare to the glory we will enjoy in Christ when he comes, if you're in him. Oh my goodness. So much more real the hope we have in Christ than the circumstances in which we suffer. So much more real... Regardless of your circumstances, good or bad, the Word of God speaks to us and reminds us of these things. If you are, have an ear to hear, you deny yourself the Word of God. You say, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to listen to the preaching and teaching. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to have discipleship groups. I'm not going to do it. You do that to yourself. You will not only decrease your faith, and I would argue, according to Hebrews 10, put yourself in peril... But I think even more disturbing is you'll hurt others. You're going to hurt others. You see, a lack of faith, a lack of assurance is not just something you deal with. It impacts people. It impacts your brothers and sisters in Christ here if you're a covenant member. Look at verse 10. So the Lord God said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This is, by the way, a second calling for Moses. He was called. He responded. This is a second calling because he had failed. He said, Go back to Moses. Go back to Pharaoh. I told you. Tell him to let my people go. Moses comes up with what? The same excuse he had before. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Some of your translations may read faltering or unskilled lips. Heard that one before. God didn't buy it. God said, okay, I'll give you Aaron. And by the way, Exodus 4.12, I will be with your mouth. God can't get any closer than that with your words if he says, I'll be with your mouth. It was a bogus excuse. Moses knew it. Moses knew God wasn't going to buy it. And yet after leaving the time in prayer, so encouraged, so uplifted, bringing the seven I will statements and the four great promises back to the people. The people did not believe, and Moses reverted back to a state of faithlessness. You see the impact? Moses was back on board. He tells the people, the people don't believe, and now Moses doesn't believe. My friends, do not think that your lack of assurance in the character and promises of God impacts you only. As members of the local church, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, listen, 
We are all in one spirit, baptized into one body, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Your disposition of heart impacts others. It affects the hearts and the minds of those around you. If you're filled with encouragement, you'll encourage others. If you have the strength of the Holy Spirit, you will strengthen others. If you find yourself faithless, it is a contagious faithlessness that will impact others. You allow your circumstances to dictate your assurance. You become a puppet to your emotions and refuse to be nourished by the Word of God. You will bring harm upon your church even if you don't know it. I can tell you pastorally over the years, I am never more encouraged than when I see the church collective acting and pressing hard into the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, making disciples, really working together. The flip side of that coin is the same. I can tell you pastorally, my greatest struggles have always been when CBC seems to be faithless. You say, well, what do you mean? We still believe. Of course we believe, but we don't act like we believe. Little to no evangelizing taking place. Little to no discipleship taking place. Struggling to participate in the simple corporate gatherings of prayer and music and Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. No seeming care or real care for the hearts of others. Not asking ourselves questions like this. Is my disposition encouraging or discouraging my brothers and sisters? That's a great question, saints. Is my lack of presence in the life of the church causing others like Moses to stumble? This is Moses. He talked to God from a burning bush, and he stumbled when they did not believe. God pays no attention to Moses' flimsy excuse. You notice that? Look at verse 13. But the Lord... Almost as though he didn't hear a word Moses said. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he said the same thing. Go to Pharaoh, tell him I'm bringing my people out. Moses was desperate. Moses wanted out. God, being the good and gracious father, didn't hear a word he said. said, just go, Moses. Just go. Go. Do your job. Do what I'm telling you to do. So, Yahweh is to be trusted. Number two, your assurance will be affected by the degree to which you hear the word of God. I want to show you one more point, and then I'll close. When it's really hard, when those expectations of that job you wanted to get or the degree that you were seeking or the, the, the marriage that did not work out, or when you're subject to that type of suffering, real physical suffering, or the emotional suffering of a broken relationship or a lost loved one, when that comes upon you, or when those two come together, and you find your hope wavering, your assurance of your faith wavering, where, where can you find it again? I mean, what do you do? I know what the flesh wants to do. It wants to hide and isolate. Stay away from people, get behind a door, lock it, Point number three, in whom can our hope be found? I hope you're still with me. Verses 14 to 25, it's an abbreviated genealogy. From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, picks up with Jacob's son Levi and then traces from Levi all the way down to Moses and Aaron who were brothers. 
Now, as I said, when Westerners hear this, we think, can we, can we just bypass this? It, it seems boring. It seems irrelevant. But the Israelites hearing this in connection with the promises would have been incredibly encouraged. Moses and the people were to see here a continuity between the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their present difficulties, that they weren't disconnected, that God is the same God of the same people, reiterating the same promises, and he's about to do what? He's about to act with an outstretched arm. He's going to do something in the midst of their difficulties. He's going to fulfill the promises that he had made four generations prior to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was going to do that through Moses and Aaron who were in their midst. God was not acting haphazardly. God never does. Everything is sovereignly ordained. Everything is purposely planned. Nor Moses and Aaron were not some revolutionary upstarts that came out of the desert. This is God's plan. It's always been God's plan. It's the same plan going back to the beginning. And the great encouragement to you is it cannot be altered by us. He's sovereign. So your encouragement or discouragement, your faith or lack of assurance will not change his plan. He's a faithful God. And then this chapter ends with self-doubt. There's a recapitulation of what was already stated. Look at verses Look at verse 28. That's a recapitulation of 11 through 13, verses 28 and following. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, verse 29, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that I say to you all that I say to you, verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? He wasn't saying it again. It's just telling the story a second time. When we, when we see Moses and we think of Moses, especially early on here, you would realize that this man would not be cast for any of the heroes in the Avenger movies. I mean, this, no one would go to Moses and say, you know what, we got a part for you. I mean, he's, he's given an opportunity to exercise a heroic part, and he says, I can't do it. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Send me away, Lord. He's not your typical superhero, and he's not supposed to be. Because Moses is not the hero of the story. We talked about this in week one. The hero of this story is God. The hero of this story specifically is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. Moses is extraordinary. He's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We would want to live lives of obedience like Moses. And God will use him in a mighty way. And if you have faith, God will use you in a mighty way too. But Moses is not the hero. Moses would not be. Aaron would not be. It wouldn't be David. It wouldn't be Paul. It is Christ. He is the one man. He is the main character of the whole story. And everything revolves around him. Again, from Hebrews chapter 10, which this chapter ties into well, we're told in verse 5, when Christ came into the world, listen, he said, verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so just as Moses wanted to establish this continuity from Jacob to Moses in that genealogy, so too do we want to see the continuity between the will of God in the Old Testament and the will of God in the New Testament. Those seven I wills, Jesus said here, I'm going to do Lord. 
these glorious promises of liberation and redemption and adoption and possession of a land, they're as true for you as they were for the Israelites. In fact, I would argue they are more true for you than they were for them. Their liberation and redemption and adoption in the land, most of that was physical. You have that promise physically and spiritually. If you know Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior through faith, then you know what you have. You have a kinsman redeemer. Now, some of you say, I've never heard that term. Some of you say, I've heard it, but I don't know what it means. You have a kinsman redeemer in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 again. When God said to Moses, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, Yahweh is saying to the people of Israel, I am your kinsman redeemer. Firstborn son, Israel, God says, I am your kinsman redeemer. Now that word redeem in the Old Testament, that word in the Hebrew is a beautiful word. It means a rescuing power. It means a relational tie. It means simply that there's going to be a movement to set someone free from something, some burden, some struggle. The kinsman redeemer, if you know that to be Christ in your life by grace through faith, I would argue that is sufficient to give you radical assurance in faith every day of your life. You would need nothing more if you believed Christ is your kinsman redeemer and what he has done, is doing, and will do for you. You see, in the law that would come to Moses at Mount Sinai in a matter of months, the role the kinsman redeemer would be given. And it played a significant role in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In essence, it was this. It's real simple. A kinsman redeemer was a relative in the family who would help another relative out of a bind. That's it. But super powerful. When you had someone in your family that was struggling, someone would come to help them. Someone would come to rescue them. And this, my beloved, if, if you understand it, it will not only, it'll not only give you faith and overcome your lack of assurance, I would argue it will make your faith soar. We can go way beyond, oh, I just want a little assurance, Pastor. I want to, I want to have an understanding of my kinsman redeemer that causes my faith to overflow. According to Leviticus 25, an Israelite who was sold into slavery to a foreigner the Bible said that a kinsman redeemer was to buy his brother or sister or cousin or aunt or uncle back to make a payment and buy them back if they went into slavery. He was to liberate his brother from the bonds of a foreign master. God sent Moses to liberate his firstborn son Israel from the foreign master oppressor Pharaoh. God sent Jesus to liberate and to buy back his people, his church, from their enslavement to the foreign master of sin and death. You were not born in sin. You were not born to die. Those are foreign masters over you. And God sent Christ to overcome that as your kinsman redeemer. Romans chapter 8 verse 2. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's your kinsman redeemer. And he did this with his outstretched arm by sending his beloved son to that wretched cross that through his suffering we might be set free from the eternal suffering we deserve from our sin and our death. Paul said it best, Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 
say, well, that's, that's sufficient. Deuteronomy 25.5, the kinsman redeemer, was to act in the place of a deceased relative. So if a widow lost her husband, to ensure that widow was cared for and to ensure that widow had children to be brought into the family of God. A brother, or sister, a brother would step up, listen to Deuteronomy 25.5, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her to bring children into that family. God, as a kinsman redeemer, promised through Moses to adopt the Israelites into his family. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's adoption. God, through Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer of his church, has adopted tens of thousands of children. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. By grace through faith in Christ, if you know him, you are already a son and you're already a daughter and you've already been brought in. I'll give you one more. Leviticus 25 also said that a kinsman redeemer was required to help his relative who lost his property. Do we treat each other like that? If I lose my property, are you going to buy me another house? It should be yes. Listen to this. Verse 25, 25, Leviticus. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, kinsman redeemer, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold Through Moses, God said, I'm going to set you free and I'm going to bring you into your own land, the promised land. Look at verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. My beloved, after the fall, when we were cast out of the garden, we lost our land. We lost the presence of the living God, the eternal promised land. But through Jesus Christ, God has secured your future, your place, your land. He said, I'm not just going to set you free. I'm not just going to redeem you and buy you back. I'm not just going to adopt you, Sundar. I'm going to give you a place of your own, an eternal land, an eternal promised land. You know, when, when Christ was about to leave, and the disciples were all stressed out because he's going to ascend, Right? They don't want him to go, rightly so. It's God in the flesh. They didn't want him to leave. You remember what Jesus did to reassure them? Listen. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, trust in God, and believe in me. And then he said, and these are such sweet words, and there's some great children's songs about this. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, listen, I will, again, I will come again and I will take you to myself and there where I am you may also be. When Jesus Christ comes again in glory, he'll bring heaven to earth. He will establish his new kingdom here, my beloved, and you will not be a slave. You will be a free man or a free woman in a free kingdom of Christ. You will not be a servant, but you will be a son or daughter. You will be completely redeemed, brought into the family of God, and you will have the possession of the eternal promised land, reigning with Christ forever and ever, your land. Hebrews 8, 6 said that Jesus has received a superior ministry compared to Moses because the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. 
since the new covenant is established on better promises. See, what better promises? Total liberation, complete redemption, you being adopted all the way into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you truly having a land of your own, physical and spiritual, eternal in nature. Oh my goodness, your kinsman redeemer has done so much for you already, if you only believe. Your kinsman redeemer purchased all of these for you, your liberation, your redemption, your adoption, and your land, your house, by his blood. And this is your assurance, my beloved, the very blood of Christ. It doesn't get any stronger than that. Moses and the people became faithless, losing their assurance in God. But God was patient. He gave him the word. He spoke the word. And he says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. He restores Moses and eventually the people with his word. And he promises to do the same for you this morning. If your faith is faltering and your assurance in God and his promises are waning, then I would encourage you, go back to the word of God. Go back to the word of God. Hear him speak to you words of assurance. Hear him speak to you real hope about real truth. Hear him remind you of your beautiful kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, and the promises that he fulfilled for you already on the cross. Already done, saints. You've already been liberated, already redeemed, already adopted, and you're just waiting for your eternal promise. Trust in the one who makes the promises. Do not grow weary. Soon enough, his power will be displayed when he returns in all of his glory with all of his angels and all the saints, and he brings heaven to earth, and you will wonder why you doubted for a nanosecond how faithful and good this God is. You will weep over that. Those will be some of the tears that he has to wipe away. You say, why did I ever doubt this God of mine? That's how good he is. What shall we say then to these things, my beloved? Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Listen with all your might. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know the answer to that. Let's pray. Father, we must start by asking you to forgive us for a lack of faith. Every soul in this room, I would argue, would agree that we sometimes go through days and weeks and even months with a lack of assurance of our faith in Christ. We may not verbally say it, but we live like it. Father, you are such a good and gracious God, and you have proven yourself over and over, and we have your word abundantly to go to. We are without excuse. We can read it in a book. We can listen to it in sermons like this. We can listen to it online. We can be fed all day long. So we ask you to forgive us for our lack of assurance in your goodness and your promises. I ask, Lord, that you would do the exact opposite, that you would cultivate here an understanding of our kinsman redeemer and what he's already done. That if we have made a right profession of faith in Jesus Christ, if we have committed our life to him, turning from our sinful ways and turning to you, the good God, then we have already been liberated. We have already been redeemed by the power of Christ. We've already been adopted and made sons and daughters. 
And we do look forward to that promised land to come. We know, Lord, that we're still sojourners in this foreign land. We're still in the desert. But a day will come when Christ brings heaven to earth and that eternal promise of that eternal promised land will be ours as you prepare a room in your Father's house for us even now. Oh, Father, help us to dwell upon these things. Give us this assurance of faith, the real hope that we have in Christ, that we might be a people of great faith. That when this community sees and experiences the members of Cambrian Park Baptist Church, they will know we really believe, really believe in how we live our lives. Lord, I praise you for those you've gathered here today. I praise you for your glorious word here in Exodus chapter 6. I pray by your Holy Spirit you would implant it upon our hearts and minds that we might be these very people. In Christ's name, amen.